I thought we did quite well last week in Revelation, and so I thought we'd have another go. And uh, these two talks, last week and this week, are kind of they kind of go together and speak to each other. So I encourage you, if you missed last week, to have a listen and uh, listen to them together. Revelation is a complicated book, and it's steeped in the history of the people of Israel. And there's lots of nuance, and it's easy to misunderstand. So we're going to just go for the big themes here today. As soon as I became a Christian, I became aware of the tension between my newfound faith and my old familiar ways. Maybe you know something of that tension as well. Um, The ways of Christ are not the ways that we are used to. Sometimes this tension becomes writ large and becomes a kind of societal tension. It operates at the level of society. And down through the ages, we've seen what happens when a minority want to live in a way that the majority object to, and it can result in significant oppression. Uh, This is the context that the early church found itself in. It's not straightforward for us to appreciate what they faced because Christianity has for a long, long time been a dominant influence in our culture. And so I want us to think about this together for a moment. One of the things that made the early church such a target for the authorities was the overt political nature of religion in the Roman context. Very quickly, as the church was coming to life, Uh, Rome had a state religion that was essentially the worship of the emperor. And if you worshipped anyone else, you were considered to be treasonous. And so uh, Christians were often lined up and made to declare that Caesar was Lord. And if they wouldn't, bad things would happen to them. Now, during the week, I met with a group of uniting service managers here in the church, uh, being brought together by one of the uniting team who wanted to see how we can better work together, uniting church congregations and uniting services. I think that was an initiative of yours, wasn't it, Peter? Yeah. It's a great thing because there's lots of really good work going on in the community and the way that we can work together together and multiply that is worth exploring. And I was there basically on the strength of the partnership that I enjoy with Oscar and we do good things together here at the Harris Centre. And one of the questions was, all sorts of questions about what are the, the good things in the story and what are the challenges. And one of the challenges I identified was that the fundamental difference in power structure from a congregation-based power structure to an institution like Uniting, because Uniting receives government funding and has lots of very stringent accountability regimes on how it spends that money, and it has a kind of a a top-down structure by necessity. Congregations, on the other hand, are really a bunch of volunteers. Like, I can't compel you lot to do anything, can I? (laughs) If you want to do it, that's great. And I want to try and influence what you want to do by telling stories and the way I teach the Bible and so forth. But at the end of the day, if you want to do something, you do it. And if you don't, you don't. There's no power. You're not my employees. And so sometimes that power difference, the structure difference, is a bit frustrating because things operate in very different ways. But imagine for a moment an organisation like Uniting suddenly decided that it was going to take control of the congregations and tell you what to do. 
you'd probably tell them to nick off, wouldn't you? And um, in our culture, again, because we've been so influenced by Christianity, we have civic protections. They wouldn't be allowed to do that. The actual civic authority would say, no, 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 you can't do that. But what if the civic authority is the one doing the persecuting? Then there's no one to go to. And that's what the church in the early days found itself facing. Last week we considered the alternate uh, structures of power and meaning that the way of Christ proclaim in the face of Roman rule. And uh, the confrontation had a very sharp, uh, focused face. It became that thing where people had to declare either Caesar was Lord or face the consequences. And there were really awful consequences. Christians were made an example of. When your hold on power relies on keeping the people afraid of you, any insubordination or rebellion must be quashed unequivocally. There must be no room to allow others to think that they can get away with disregarding the authority because it's like people see that somebody got away with it, then other people will start to get away with it as well. And this is why crucifixion was the execution method of choice for the Romans because it was brutal. Importantly, it took a period of time. People didn't die straight away. They suffered and most crucially of all, they did it all in plain view. It was a deterrent trying to help people decide not to go against the authority. And not only so, there was other barbaric treatments uh, Christians were literally taken into the arena and then wild animals were brought in and there was a kind of performance piece where they were torn apart by wild animals. We can barely imagine that's real, but there's plenty of data to indicate that it was. Emperor Nero famously had uh, an evening garden party in which he dipped Christians in tar put them on stakes and set them alight as torches for his garden party. Now, we barely imagine that level of barbaricness, but uh, that's what the great tribulation that Revelation refers to was about. This was not a debate about differing views on the Trinity or abortion or same-sex marriage. People were being treated brutally. Their lives were being taken and they were being murdered in ways that also robbed them of their dignity and rendered them outcasts from their society. That's tribulation. We know very, very little of that. In John's vision... It's the people who have been through this tribulation that are now assembling together before the throne of God. They are carrying palm branches, which is in the Bible a symbol of first fruits, the bringing in of the harvest. So they're kind of a a symbol of the first lot of the harvest of the people. And these people have their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb which again might be a concept that you're a bit familiar with, but if you stop for a moment and think about it, no garment ever washed in any kind of blood ever turned out white. So we're dealing with a metaphor here, right? It's not actually, lit- no one's literally washing anyone with blood. 
Down through the centuries, theologians have interpreted this metaphor of being washed in the blood in very different ways, and perhaps the most common way, the most popular way, is substitution. So this is the idea that one person gets forgiven because another person gets sacrificed. And so you become let off because somebody else gets killed, basically. In archaic religion, it was a belief that the unhappy gods uh, demanded blood sacrifice and the blood appeased the gods, and if the gods were appeased, they weren't angry with the people and the people were safe. It's not surprising that similar assumptions crept into Christian faith and that way of thinking is probably to some degree familiar to you. Yeah? You still following me? Good? Okay. I just want to make sure some of this could be boring and you might have fallen asleep, so I just want to check. (laughs) A significant challenge to these assumptions arise when the willing victim, there is a, a willing victim of the sacrificial process and he turns out to be God's own son. It becomes clear that even though the victim did not deserve death, the system simply assume the victim's guilt. And we see that in the story of Jesus, obviously. Certainly Jesus died so that no one else had to. He was the substitute. But he also died so that the whole system of victim-taking would be exposed and debunked as a viable system for managing social life. I know I can't compete with that cuteness. Baby's cute too? Ah. (laughs) But that was a critical point. Jesus was a substitute, but he was also somebody who exposed the system of taking victims as a way of managing society's tensions and antagonisms. And in Christ's death, we get a new way. Remember the curtain is torn into this this move of exposing what's going on. And uh, Jesus introduces a new way of doing life together. A community no longer held together by blaming and expelling victims. Uh, It is a whole new way. Those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb are those who do not blame in order to do well in society. They don't blame Jesus as guilty and deserving death. They are washed in the blood of the Lamb. That means their eyes have been opened to that system. Okay, I'm going to step over here for a moment. (laughs) I'm being chased. In 1988, there was a film called They Live. You've probably never seen it. It was by John Carpenter, based on a short story called Eight O'Clock in the Morning by Ray Nelson. And in it, I won't give you the whole thing, but in it, a, a man discovers special sunglasses that when he puts them on, he can see through the subliminal messages of mass media. So... He, he puts on the glass, he's looking at a, a billboard. I can't remember what they were. They were things like, you know, you see a billboard of um, somebody on a holiday in the Bahamas and it says something like, uh, distract yourself for two weeks so you can be compliant for 50, you know? Or there might be a cosmetics ad in a magazine and you put on the glasses and it says, you're not good enough, you need this stuff. You know, things like that. It's a really clever idea. Some of the rest of the movie is pretty crazy and it's a B-grade movie so it's not particularly well made. But this is the kind of thing we're talking about. Those who are washed in the blood are those who are looking through a new lens. 
They're seeing reality in a new way and they're not hoodwinked by the mass view. Is anybody listening to me now? (laughs) Okay, just checking. And you might think, well, hang on a minute. Didn't God require sacrifice all along? And I want to offer you a couple of verses. You might want to note these down. They're just a sample. But in Psalm 40, verse 6, we read, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, says the psalmist to God. In Psalm 51, 16 and 17, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And we easily forget that up to the time of Jesus, cultic rituals form the central cultural glue for ancient societies. You can hear it in the etymology of the words. Cult. Culture. Actually, the cult of sacrificing was the thing that societies were built around. And Jesus' death and resurrection marks a point in social history where there is a disjuncture between culture and cultic sacrifice. That's where we stop doing the cultic sacrifice and culture moves away from that. A new unifying principle has come to replace these sacrificial rituals as the glue that helps hold society together. Micah 6, 8 captures this. Uh, sorry, 6, 6 to 8. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yielding calves? Does the Lord delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? And the answer is no, he doesn't. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? Oh, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It was the people, the people that demanded blood sacrifice not God. And then because of the horror of their actions was so great they couldn't see them, I think they pushed that onto God and blamed God. And you see an echo of this in the very first story of human beings in the Bible in Genesis. That dynamic is evident when uh, Adam is found out by God for what he's done. And what does he say? It was the woman that you gave me. It wasn't my fault. It was God. You did it. So, what's the alternative? If we do not offer blood sacrifice in order to be accepted, acceptable to God, what do we do? And I think Micah has made that clear. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. So, in John's vision, there's a vision of the tabernacle being thrown over the people. It's a beautiful idea And uh, in this way, we will be watched over by a different kind of power. Not the oppressive power of Rome, a different kind of power. Not an oppressive state, but the power of God. God's tabernacle thrown over us, like Boaz threw his garment over Ruth and said, I will look after you. You are now under my protection. God is watching over And this is not the watching over of security cameras or constant invasive surveillance or anti-terror restrictions. 
and the attempt to stop dangerous people doing dangerous stuff, this is a different kind of watching over. This is a care for one another. When we see our brother or sister in need and we respond with compassion and kindness so as to build an internal resistance to people being dangerous and destructive. See, there are two ways to stop people from being dangerous and destructive. You can have lots of surveillance so when they're about to do their dangerous, destructive thing, you stop them, or you care for them so much and cause them to be so attached to their community that they don't want to be dangerous and destructive. And I put it to you, the second one is more reliable than the first. This is the divine watching over. It's not a mechanical or pragmatic thing. It's relational and heartfelt and history and experience of life make it clear that it is the best way of doing life. Example A, watching over. I love the way you step in and do that for me, Seb. You're fantastic. And if we want to enjoy the richest life, we don't want more government surveillance, do we? We want a community that cares for one another in a committed, thoroughgoing kind of way. Needs get attended to. The sun won't beat down on you anymore and you will not hunger or thirst. Recognise some of those people? That was last week, I think. God will be watching over the people. They no longer suffer from being hungry or thirsty because they live and work together as community and we ensure that no one is abandoned while ever there is food or drink available. And a very basic example of this is the Powerhouse Museum. Come down after the service. I'm not sure how many people will be there today, Mother's Day. But if you do, people will buy their beverages, some people will have lunch, and then there's the chips. If you've got no money at all, you'll still get chips. Because as soon as a bucket of chips hits that table, they're nobody's anymore, they're everybody's even if that's your intention or the culture is so strong that they'll just disappear. And we're not doing anything in particular. We just know that if you're here with us, you're part of this. You'll get looked after. And that is the kind of basic care that is God's kind of care. And we will be cared for. There he is again. (laughs) It's interesting. The vision does not say there will be an absence of appetite or an absence of tears, it says that you'll be led to living water and God will wipe away your tears. We will not be made less than human. We will be able to have all our human vulnerability in the context of care. That's where we become fully alive. Scripture is clear throughout its pages. Being counted among God's people does not protect anybody from affliction. Sorry if that's your previous belief. It really, all the indications are actually, it probably likely puts you more in harm's way than anything else because you're standing against the dominant way. But this is not for no purpose. Being counted amongst God's people means that you no longer simply coalesce with the majority, with the mob. You don't simply go with the flow. You have recognised the oppression that is inherent in the world's ways and you've decided to participate in that less and less and do something alternative. You have been washed clean. Your eyes are now open. Jesus' death and resurrection has changed 
what you believe is most important and how things work. You've discovered a new and living way, a way of watching out for one another, the way of sharing what we have with those in need, a way of walking with and caring for each other. In increments and in moments, I dare say, you are tasting eternal life. It puts you at odds with the dominant system. But it's the eternal way and those who live it will not be disappointed. Let us pray. Lord, we know the early church went through dire times and as we read the book of the Revelation, we, we are confused because it's so foreign to us and yet you see those people whose eyes have been opened, they've been washed clean, they're doing it a different way and they come out of the tribulation and into the eternal care of your heart. And Lord, that comes mediated through your people. So we are both the beneficiaries, the participants, the the ones who do it. And we thank you that that's what you have entrusted us to do. In your precious name. Amen.